welcome everyone to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. It's uh, it's me, it's Ben Hunt, uh, and we're trying something different today. Instead of Rusty and I uh, batting back and forth something that we've written about, I wanted to bring in an author who I think has got a lot to say about all things Epsilon Theory. And that author is Luke Burgess. Uh, Luke's written, I think it's a fantastic book. It's called Wanting, the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. It, uh, it, it, it just came out, and it's, it's such an entertaining read, frankly, right? I mean, it's got everything from Vegas hitmen, wise guys, to, uh, you know, interviews with chefs about their Michelin stars, to a, a conversation with Peter Thiel. It's, it's, it has all of that, and it made me think about my own life and why I want what I want. So I, I think that sort of combination in a book is, is pretty darn rare. And so I'm really happy to have Luke on the podcast this, this, this episode to talk about his book, to talk about why we want what we want. So Luke, welcome. Could you just tell the audience a bit about yourself? Because I, I think you've had almost as eclectic a career as I have, and that, that's always fun too. Oh, thanks, Ben. Sure. So I'm from Michigan, born and raised, and went to NYU undergrad and took the uh, stereotypical route of a stern undergrad, the uh, very mimetic route, and went to work on Wall Street for a little while. I didn't make it very long. Um, I know, you know, Rusty had said in his wonderful piece in praise of work, you know, maybe you have to put in three years of soul sucking <laughs> work and put in your time and get their credentials before you move on. But I'll tell you, I couldn't do it. Yep. Um, I made it uh, about a year. I was in New York and then they sent me over to Hong Kong to do M&A in China, going doing due diligence on Chinese coal mines. And I was like, man, this is either this is going to kill me either physically or spiritually. <laughs> and I'm not sure which one's going to come first. Uh, and then I left uh, after about a year, moved to California and was in the startup world for most of my 20s, uh, co-founded three or four companies, depending on how you count. One was kind of a spinoff. And you know, I had an existential crisis in my late 20s, uh, asking myself, you know, why do I want some of the things that I want? What am I going after here? I, I'd achieved some financial freedom. And then I had a major blow up uh, with Tony Shea and a deal gone, gone wrong. And I stepped away, uh, gave myself a, a little sabbatical where I said, you know, Luke, you're going to read classic literature. You're going to read, study, hang out, travel. Uh, I did what a lot of you know, students do when they're in college or shortly after college. I just happened to do it after I started a few companies. And that took me down a path where I ended up uh, formally uh, studying philosophy and theology because uh, I was uh, seriously considering at that point or discerning a pretty radical break uh, and even a religious vocation. I wasn't sure uh, if that was my path or not. You went to a seminary school, didn't you? Or what I did. Was it? Yeah, I did. So I, I went. That's that's why I studied theology. Uh, so I spent a few years in Rome. I, I was I basically lived on the Janiculum Hill right above the Vatican. Um, got a degree in theology, and you know, ultimately discerned that wasn't my path. And I came back to the states, and you know, you all talk so much about work and identity and, and how much of it is bound up with identity. So here I am, uh, you know, finance degree, uh, philosophy, theology, strange combination, um, vastly different work experiences. And now I'm like, Luke, your job now is to somehow 
live an integrated life and approach work and business and entrepreneurship differently than you did before, because, you know, that clearly didn't work. That was making you miserable and you, you just didn't feel fulfilled doing it. So I came back to the States. Um, this is a while ago now with, with a real renewed sense of purpose and feeling more integrated than I've ever felt with an understanding of what work is and what it means that I certainly didn't have before. Um, and of course, during all of this, I read Rene Girard and he had a massive influence in my understanding of myself and the world and crazy things going on in politics and in, in business and in the markets. So, you know, I've spent the last few years, um, I, I help run a center for entrepreneurship in DC. Um, I still have my hand, obviously I write, I have my hands in a lot of different things. I wear a lot of different hats. Um, but that has been, um, this has been a process of me trying to approach entrepreneurship and investing in everything that I do uh, with, uh, you know, I, I guess, as, as, as you would say, right, um, you know, clear minds, full hearts, you know, can't, can't lose. And it's my own version of that. Right on, right on. You know, it's funny, there are lots of places to go with that little intro. I, let me just ask you, when were you at NYU? I was teaching at NYU from 1990 to through 96. So I was there, I transferred from Pace. So I spent my first couple of years downtown Manhattan. And then, so I was at NYU, my junior and senior years, 2002 to 2004. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 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 Quite a, quite a place. The old NYU. Uh, the old stern curve. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So I think the, where I'd like to take this is, you know, you were, and this is where you start the book. In fact, the, the, the I guess the, 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 really the introduction to the book is, around your, I'll call it negotiation or conversation with Zappos and, 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 and Tony Shea. Uh, I would love for you to briefly recount that to, argue, to, to, to this audience because it's the conclusion to that introduction that I think set the stage for me at least to be open to, to understanding what you mean by a mimetic notion of desire, why we want what we want. Because I'll 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 step on the lead right now. The conclusion to this story that I think you're about to tell is you were relieved. So, relieved, yeah. Yes. So so tell the audience the story, which again is the introduction to to your book Wanting, and let's talk about why at the end of this story you were relieved, and why relief is a punchline and sets up the entire book. So, you know, this was my uh, third company um, called Fit Fuel. We were an online retailer based out of Vegas. I, we started out in California and I quickly realized that Nevada was a, was a smarter place for us to be. So I uh, moved to Vegas and uh, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos at the time, happened to have done the same thing. He just did it a couple of years earlier than I did. So they moved Zappos from San Francisco to Vegas, uh, primarily because it's a great place to find um customer service representatives for, for Zappos. And um, the two of us met uh, shortly after I moved the company there. And we happened to have very similar businesses, both online retailers. They happen to sell shoes. We happen to sell wellness products. I mean, and they happen to sell a heck of a lot more than we did <laughs> to an over billion dollars at the time. This, this um, is before Amazon bought them, right? Shortly before, shortly Amazon before, yeah. And what I didn't mention in the book is, uh, you know, I think they were in talks with, with Am early talks with Amazon. I'll get, I'll get to that, and that probably had something to do with why this deal didn't go through. So Tony and I got to be very good friends, um, you know, to the point I, my mother and father came to visit me in Vegas from Michigan, 
And, you know, we all had dinner, Thanksgiving dinner at Tony's house with his parents and a bunch of random friends, you know, um, that's how close we came to be. And at a certain point, uh, we talked about joining forces. I mean, Tony actually asked me if I'd be open to this idea after the very first lunch we had together because they had hit a billion dollars in sales and they were already thinking, what's going to fuel the next billion? What's the next silo? And we were growing extremely fast. And we had a kind of a company culture that I think he liked to see. You know, we were scrappy. We were a little weird, all of those things. Well, uh, I went down a path of trying to make this deal happen. This was, We started out having the negotiations and the talks in early 2008 when everything was looking pretty rosy. And during the course of that year, you know, the skies darkened very quickly. <laughs> and uh, I was far more leveraged than Zappos was. Uh, I didn't have much room for error. And we saw our sales decline pretty quickly over the course of the year to the point where beginning of the year, great shape, uh, about halfway to two thirds of the way through the year, I was in serious trouble. And I really needed the deal to go through and make a relatively long story short. I tell this in the preface to the book. Um, we worked everything out in, in principle, handshake agreement. Uh, Tony and, and Alfred and the executives had a board meeting. Uh, sort of the deal was verbally approved. Tony and I go out and celebrate together at the Mandalay Bay and the Las Vegas Strip. And you know, I call a bunch of people and tell them, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to be part of Zappos. We're going to keep building this thing. And I wake up the next morning and I had a buddy of mine who was staying with me at the time. That's what happens when you live in Vegas. You always get people that want to stay with you. And um, I took him on the tour of the Zappos headquarters and we ran into the executives and they looked like they'd just seen a ghost when they saw me. I was like, this isn't the way that this is supposed to, to, to work. And I, I knew something was wrong. Uh, we ended up, they didn't, oddly, they didn't say anything. I left, we went out to dinner later that night and I get a call from the, the CFO Zappos who said, Luke, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, you know, the deal is off. Uh, the board is spooked. They, they basically had a meeting after the meeting and they changed their minds and said, you know, we're not going to spend any money right now. We've got to save every penny we can, we can get, right? So the deal is off. And hard to describe my initial feeling. My, my heart just dropped down to my feet. In the, in the book, you say, you, you get on the, they changed their minds. Right? <laughs> like, is that, is that, that something yeah. that happens? Yeah. Yeah. They changed their minds? You know, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I kept mouthing those words. As I went back to my, uh, my, my table, we were out to eat at this little uh, hole-in-the-wall Italian restaurant in a strip mall, in, which are always where the best Italian restaurants are. You know, uh, if you're from Jersey, you know that. And, uh, you know, I sat down and I told, told my friend what had happened. And over the course of the meal, as I thought more about it, this intense feeling of relief washed, washed over me. And I, the only way I can describe it is, is it, was, it was almost a sense of freedom. Like I'm free to now do whatever I want to do. Uh, I can walk away from this company tomorrow and I don't have a responsibility. I didn't have investors at the time. Uh, it was just me. So I didn't have a responsibility to anybody. Uh, I could walk away. And when I was honest with myself, I realized that the job was making me relatively miserable. It's an alarming thing to feel when you founded a company. You don't want to go into your own office every day. It was making me miserable. I didn't believe in half of the products we were selling. Uh, and I just wasn't happy. And I, I needed to take, I need to slow down. And I also realized at the same time that I was really conforming myself to 
uh, I think what Tony or what the Zappos culture wanted me to be. And it wasn't who I felt like I really was, but I wanted the deal to go through so badly. I needed it to go through that. I was kind of telling everybody what they wanted to hear. I was leaning into the Zappos culture a lot to the, you know, and I felt this odd tension to the kind of like, yeah, I'm losing myself a little bit. Like, what am I doing here? Am I just going to join Zappos for then be miserable for the next five years? So the relief that I felt was a freedom from having gone down a path that probably would have made everything worse. You know, look, you've used the same word twice now in your description of this. You've said that I needed this, right? And, and I don't think you're using that word solely in a financial sense, right? I, I mean, that would have been, I'm, I'm sure, nice because it, it, it was an awful time in 08 to run any sort of business, much less a, a, a startup business, right? Um, but I think when you say you needed this, and this is going to get into, I, I, I hope, your description of what is the mimetic theory of desire. Why do we want what we want? What, what do you mean when you say you needed this? Is that's, that's what I'd like to, 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 to hear your thoughts on. Well, that's a great clarification. Um, cause it would have certainly been nice financially, but I didn't absolutely need it. I wasn't going to be out on the streets if this deal didn't go through, you know, I'd set things up where I, I would be fine. Um, so I needed it in almost an existential sense. You know, I needed it for my sense of self um, and, you know, sort of the way I represented myself as an entrepreneur. Uh, I needed it uh, for a lot of social reasons, socially derived reasons. And I sort of like, you know, people need other people and become codependent on them, whether that person is it's a healthy relationship or not. It was that kind of neediness. We don't often talk about that kind of neediness in work and in our, in our careers. So that's what it was. And it was almost like something that I wouldn't have been able to extract or save myself from on my own, unless there had been, um, for lack of a better term, almost like an act of God that, that, that sort of like woke me up, right? Something external to myself. And so I think that's, that's a, that's a great clarification, right? You see this a, all the time, Luke, in, in kind of my, my world, my more most recent world, you know, that of uh, investing, right? So the, the, the same sort of need that you're describing is what you, I, I feel it and I have felt it in myself. I see it in so many others in this business where it's around, oh, I, you know, I need to be that portfolio manager or I need to make that transition from, the sell side working for a bank to the to the buy side right uh, it's it's there's an element of money and need associated with that but it's that psychological need that existential need that typically does require what you're describing an act of god right whether that's a market crash right or you know tony shea and the the, the board of zappo saying now nah, we changed our mind you know, it, it, it's not something that I find that anyone can um, take themselves or, or it's so difficult to take themselves off of that path without some sort of external crisis that precipitates that kind of look. And, and I don't think it's an accident. You say you were in your late 20s when this happened, Luke. So you look at all the 
says that the magic age is 27 for all the great religions of the world, all the old religions. So, right, so whether we're talking about Gautama, whether we're talking about Jesus, you know, 27 is that age <laughs> where, where you are challenged externally and you respond to that challenge and, in, in, you know, in, in, in different ways, you know, different people find different ways, but, but it is typically in your late 20s throughout history where that challenge occurs. So how did that then reflect itself other than, you know, what you're describing? You know, I, I wanted to, I studied theology. I studied all of this. Tell us now what is a mimetic theory of desire. And by, by the way, I, I want to caution kind of readers. There are two words that I've, I've used and they're, they're not interchangeable. There's mimetic, M-I-M-E-T-I-C, and there's mimetic, M-E-M-E-T-I-C. Mimetic meaning around memes and cartoons and, and, and in the technical sense, these abstractions. So I've, I've written about both, but, I, but, I, but you're talking about like a mime, right? You know, the, 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 the mimetic theory of desire. Tell us now what that is, Luke, and how that understanding that has changed your life and how you think about the world. Right. So this mimic or this mimetic is M-I-M. So think mime or think mimic. Mimetic comes from the Greek word that simply means to imitate. And I was very inspired by the French thinker René Girard, who started writing about mimetic desire in the late 50s and early 60s. And he recognized something fundamental about human nature, he thought, and it's the extent to which mimesis or imitation affects human behavior. But what he noticed that was different than sort of classic philosophers is that the mimesis goes down to the level of desire itself. So it's not limited to external things or the imitation of uh, you know, superficial things like language, uh, style, fashion. Uh, we read under the surface to the intentions of other people, and we see what they want. Uh, we intuit what they want, and we're engaged in this uh, imitative game without really knowing that we're doing it, a game of, of, of imitation, and he calls this mimetic desire. And this uh, leads to all kinds of problems between people because it naturally leads to rivalry and to conflict, especially when we don't know that we're caught up in it. And even if it doesn't lead to external conflict or rivalry, uh, it almost certainly leads to internal conflict and rivalry in the form of, of just misery and sort of confusion about your own life. And this was one it's not the only mental model that, that was helpful to me at that point in my life, but I did come across him around that time that I stepped away from that company and was tremendously helpful uh, in helping me see the way that mimetic desire had pulled and pushed me in different directions throughout my life. All the while, while I was convincing myself, I had a narrative about why I was doing the things that I was doing. Uh, and that narrative was given to me by other people. Uh, you know, it, it connects so much with what 
we write about at Epsilon Theory, you know, most directly what we've been writing recently about, about this concept of, of nudging, right? Which is the, you know, it comes from the, the, the book Nudge uh, by uh, Dick Thaler and uh, uh, Cass Sunstein. And it, it really revolves around the idea that, that we are hardwired, I think, and socially trained to want what we see others wanting, you know, mimesis or imitation. And it never feels like, and this is why uh, both Thaler and Sunstein use the word choice architecture. It never seems like we are being shunted down a specific series of, of, of choices. It feels on the inside like, no, we're our own man or woman. We're making our own decisions here. This is what I want. And yet it's in the framing of these choices, which happens from the day we're freaking born to the day we're freaking die. The choices that are presented to us and the way that they are framed and shaped to us, it makes it much less of a question of, of, of a free will and autonomy. And it makes such, it's such a challenge to do the thing that, Socrates, another person at an early age around 27 kind of came into his own to know thyself, right? How does one know thyself? How do you know what you want is what you really want and not what you're just imitating other people wanting. And you've got so many great examples of this in the book, right? And, you know, just easy ones like, Oh, you go up for a, for, for a drink with a friend and he, he, he orders, something that you hadn't thought about ordering and you think, yeah, I want that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and we live at a time of strong uh, and prevailing narratives. And I think the pandemic has um, made them even stronger. And there's, we have new narratives right now. Um, and people are making big decisions over the, these last 18 months. Um, and whether it's about where to relocate or, you know, like little life decisions, right? Changing jobs and careers. And so much of that, and it's usually when I ask people why they're making some of these decisions, they give, um, they just list all of the, let's say, objective reasons why it makes sense to move to upstate New York or to Austin um, or, you know, to a farm in Connecticut or something. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I, there's not, a, doesn't seem to be a lot of awareness in terms of how the narratives may be shaping the attention given to those things in the first place. And, and that's why I think we, we've got to sort of understand the way that these invisible forces are acting on us and try to make what's invisible visible. And, and we'll, we'll be able to understand ourselves a lot better um, and not necessarily be able to convince ourselves um, of our own uh, sort of certitude uh, at a time of um, high stress and anxiety. And I, I don't know if I necessarily buy the prevailing narrative that these last 18 months have simply helped everybody understand what they really want. That's the prevailing narrative. And I'm not so sure that that's true. Um, I think people feel like maybe they've, they've identified um, what they really want. But to your point, uh, we always feel that way. And we don't necessarily have an understanding of the, of the forces and influences that are shaping our, our decision making. Yeah, I, I share your, I'll say, suspicion, Luke, that there's been some magical 
and here I'm being pejorative with the words I'm using, but there, there, there's been some sort of introspective revelation that's occurred to everyone in terms of their, and I'll focus on their relationship with, with work. Right? What, what I think has happened is that we've seen a transformation in work. And here I'm talking about predominantly, well, the type of work that the listeners of this podcast are going to be engaged in, um, you know, white collar, um, symbolists, you know, people who work with symbols for a living, <laughs> who, who transform symbols, uh, who work in front of a computer screen all day, in other words. I, I do think that what happened over the course of COVID in regards to work is that there was a realization that what we thought was necessary, what was use one of our words, you know, common knowledge. What everyone knows that everyone knows is that you have to work from an office. And it, I think at some point it, it, it turned out, well, no, that, or in the past, that was in fact what we like to call industrially necessary, right? That, that in order to have a better functioning economy and corporate work and growth and productivity, yes, that, Yes, you needed to go into an office to work in the same way that I think that most of our, our food production here, it's not right or wrong, it's industrially necessary. And that, that was what really prompted me to write about this was about the difference between the, the eggs we get from our chickens in the backyard versus the eggs you get from the supermarket. And it's hard, frankly, to give fresh eggs to someone because fresh eggs aren't cool to the touch. They never go in the refrigerator. They're not spotlessly clean. They're not, they're not scrubbed and washed. You know, they're what we call fingernail clean. And they've got a little bit of you know, dirt on them, which if you know how chickens live, probably isn't really just dirt. Right? So people respond to them and think, no, no, no. The good egg is not the warm fingernail clean egg, the good egg is the egg that I get from the supermarket. It's cool. It's been refrigerated. It's been scrubbed clean. That is the good egg. And the fact is, it's not the good egg. In fact, it's, a, it's an inferior egg right, to, the, to the ones you can get fresh, but it is the industrially necessary egg. The coolness, the scrubbed cleanedness, this is required when you need to produce eggs in industrial conditions and in industrial quantities. So that we confuse what is industrially necessary with the good, with what we want. We want that industrially necessary egg because it's been presented to us as a Hobson's choice. It's the only choice. And of course, if it's the only choice to get you to buy more of it, you say, well, no, but it's really good. That's the good egg. And I think that, that that same, you certainly see the same thing with the way we um, educate our kids, our schooling system, right? The, the, the public education system in this country, I think is wonderful. But the reason we have it is it's industrially necessary. Not that it's the best system to educate your kids. It's industrially necessary. And I think we've developed so many of those patterns of common knowledge around work as well. So that it was industrially necessary to go into an office every day and sit there in your office or your cubicle and, you know, manipulate your symbols. What we saw during the, the 
last 18 months course of COVID is, well, it's actually not industrially necessary. It might be industrially preferable. Your employer might prefer you to come into the office for controlled surveillance, for all the, all the reasons that I want my employees to come into the office. But it's not industrially necessary. It's only industrially preferable. And once you get into the realm of preference, that's the realm of politics. That's the realm where the choice architecture opens up. And other players, other people who would like to encourage or, or, or discourage working from home or, or, or working from the office, it gives them room then to try to insert their choice architecture into it. To your point, Luke, it's turtles all the way down. It, it, it's people imposing a choice architecture on us all the way down. And it's always hard to maintain some sort of critical distance from, from, from these efforts. So I, I think you're absolutely right. There has been a change, clearly a change, in how people think about work and the identity that they um, develop purely from their work. And it's leading them to, to, to ask more questions and to consider other choices. These choices are still nudged and still influenced, though, even though our choice architecture here has definitely changed. I think it's a good thing that this is, that this is opening up, right? But then the question goes, well, what, what, what's the equilibrium state Right. Where, where, where does this ultimately settle down? And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because what you talk about in the book are different. I think you call them different cycles, but, but we can approach this question of mimetic desire that we are all, I don't want to use the word prisoners of, right? but we, we are hardwired to respond to this. I think this is what it, part of what it means to be a social animal is that we take our cues from the communications, verbal and otherwise, of others, of other humans. This is what it means to be a, a, a social animal. So given all that, right, Luke, how should one behave or think about the choices that they're presented with? about what makes for a better life where you're wanting, we all have wants, but where these wants are understood in a way that can lead to a more autonomous life. How, what, what should we do, Luke, in response to all this? Well, that's a huge question, uh, existential question, but I think we can start you know, just by talking about framing and understanding our relationship to the frames that are given to us about anything, about politics, about what work is, about what's happening right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, even the way that a newspaper headline is written, um, the great resignation, for instance, that very phrase right there, uh, I've already seen turned into a meme. And how does that influence my feelings about what is happening right now. So the very act of thinking about that, well, how is this framed? What perspective did the journalist have who was writing this? And what are they trying to achieve with this, right? So kind of like everybody's playing metagames now, um, but 
it is possible to kind of understand what you're consuming and try to get inside the heads a little bit of the people that are framing things for you rather than just accepting it at face value. Um, you give you an example. I, I, you know, this is, this is my dream conversation because you know, you're at the intersection of finance and politics and philosophy and all of these things. Uh, the, the very idea of, um, you know, no centrist candidate could ever win an election in, in the U S right now. Well, that is, um, that is a frame. And I, I think that if we, if we accept that frame, then that will surely be the case. So there's an element of reflexivity involved in all of this because we're social creatures and we're always responding to what we think other people think. <laughs> and, and this can lead to some self-fulfilling prophecies. And I, I, I really think that in one of my only goals with this book is to start conversations like this one um, and, and to get people to see that there are these mimetic phenomena happening that are leading to polarization in politics uh, and other areas of life. And to, to understand when we may be reflexively responding or reacting to things, accepting frames without realizing it. And I do believe in the importance of um, being able, however you do this, to be able to extract yourself and to, to gain some critical distance uh, from the noise and to be able to probe these questions or what are the narratives that are being, that are being told to me. Uh, going through a series of questions, and I think ET has been great at that, right? It's a process. And each of us has to develop our own process. Mine may be different from yours. I, I outline part of mine in the book. There's 15 little tactics that I use. Your process may be different from mine, but what's important is that you do have a process for cutting through this phenomenon that, that I've called and Gerard has called mimetic desire uh, and, and mimesis that leads to all kinds of negative problems, if especially if we're not aware of it. Yeah, it's, it's that awareness, right? And, and I think that what, what comes with the awareness is, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll use this word, and, and it, it, what comes through this awareness is humility. I, I actually do think that, that, that humility and a squelching of the ego, as hard as that is for, for, for me personally, <laughs> I don't know about you, Luke, but as hard as that is, that, that, that is so crucial to maintaining a critical distance, right? Because I think the common denominator of the nudges that we receive, they are, they're designed to turn us into a consumer, a user of whatever it is that the nudger is wanting to sell, whether that's, you know, politics, whether that's a, you know, a shoe to wear, right? You know, what, whatever that thing is, uh, all of these nudges are designed to make us uh, as consumers of that. And what it preys on, I think, are the are the emotions of ego, 
right, of, of, of what I, I like to call uh, other regarding emotions. And, and there are two huge ones, right? The, I think the most powerful one is jealousy. And the second most powerful is, is schadenfreude. Right? Those, those are what I like to call emotions of the flock, right? Not emotions of the pack. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I am on a farm in Connecticut and we do have sheep. And sheep are not stupid. But sheep, what sheep are, are incredibly other regarding. They travel in a flock. They're, they're always together. We have four sheep. They're always together to the point where if you only see three of them, you start, you know, now I'm worried. Where, where's the fourth one? Right? They, 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 they travel together, not because they are, I'll say, loyal to each other. That's not it at all. It's all engaged in other regarding. They're always very aware of where the other sheep are not because they really care about the other sheep, but because there is that other sheep in danger, in which case, well, that might be a danger for me. Is that other sheep finding a really good area of grass, in which case, okay, I need to go over there and I need to have you know, some of that, that, that grass that, that the other sheep is eating. They're incredibly other, other regarding and other aware, but it's from a position of incredible selfishness, of incredible ego. And I like to distinguish that between what I like to call the pack, which the other regarding emotion here is not doesn't come out of ego and me, but it comes out of how do I support the other? It's it's based on empathy, which is is clearly an other regarding emotion, but it doesn't come from this place of ego. It comes from a place of of humility and achieving something bigger and better together. And that's what you refer to, uh, I think, in your book, is what you like to call cycle two, about using mimesis and, and, and thinking about this, but in a way that makes us stronger and better, not weaker and more prone to being nudged in service to others. Right? Can you can you talk a bit a bit more about that? What what is that cycle? What are these cycles that you're talking about in the book? And 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 how do we get on on the good cycle, cycle two? Well, the phrase other regarding I love. And I think it sums up what the book is all about. Because uh, Gerard's fundamental point is that as human beings, we are far more other regarding than sheep. <laughs> far more other regarding. But the other regarding can be good or it can be bad. Um, we can regard others um, and pay attention to others because we want to serve them or give them something good, or we can be other regarding because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses or because we're envious of whatever they have. So it's a two-sided coin. And I spend the first half of the book talking about the negative cycle of desire, and that's the regard for the other in an envious, rivalrous um, threatening way where the other is always uh, imposing themselves on us. And we try to impose our will on the other. And it's a zero sum game. And that's bad for politics. It's bad in business. It's bad in relationships. It's bad period. Okay. And it always leads to conflict. And eventually on a societal level, it even leads to serious violence, a revolution, things like that. Right. This is how Gerard said, that um, mimetic crises, in his words, are resolved, typically through scapegoats. Um, the, other, the other side here is 
we can be other regarding in a positive sense. We can care for our neighbor. We can serve others. We can serve the poor. This is crucial. And this is, I spend the second half of the book trying to make a case um, that, you know, and the whole book ends with this idea of live as if you had a responsibility for what other people want. Now, obviously not full responsibility, um, but some responsibility in the sense that we're social creatures. And, you know, if you're my best friend and I, you know, start engaging in incredibly toxic behavior and desiring certain things, I'm going to affect you probably at some level, and then you're going to have a choice to make. So we see that uh, relatively clearly when it comes to parents and children, or when it comes to very close friends, not so easily when it comes to our colleagues and things. So this raises kind of, I mean, I would, I would propose it raises an ethical question um, about the way that we do business because I certainly want to nudge people all the time. Um, I just got married three weeks ago, and I'll tell you, uh, I, I really wanted to nudge uh, when I met her, my, my wife, Claire, I wanted to nudge her in the direction of really liking me and thinking I was the coolest guy in the world, you know, and, and, and nudge her in the direction of loving me. Okay. Now, there were two ways that I could go about, and I'm, I'm going to tie this into business. There, there are two ways that I could go about nudging Claire in the direction of me. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, maybe I'm not the right partner for her, but I, I thought that I was. So I could, I could go about it in a coercive way, um, you know, in, in a way that, you know, was passive aggressive. And, you know, if you're not with me, you're going to be lonely or whatever, you know, in a way that's driven by fear and selfishness and ego. Any, anyone who's seen any episode of The Bachelor or Bachelorette knows exactly what you're talking about, especially this most recent episode, by the way. So. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I haven't oh, seen it. Oh, it's good. Except when Compelling. I've been forced Compelling. to watch it. Yeah. Um, or, um, you know, to, to use, I mean, I'm going to use it. This is a biblical phrase to, to sort of pull gently, you know, through little strings of, of, of love. So the, the sensation to the one being acted on um, is the difference between feeling like you're being pushed from the back towards something or from being uh, like a gentle tug at the front of your shirt, like you're being gently and lovingly pulled in a certain direction. That's the sensation of the of the receiver to two different modes of, of, of interaction. Okay. And I tried my best to, you know, to just give give Claire the gentle tugs, okay, to to love her and to serve her and hope, hope that she would reciprocate. So I, I think that this is an ethical question for people and you know, entrepreneurs like me in business. Um, the way that I approach, you know, selling my product. I mean, I can use manipulative ways to do that. Um, or I can appeal to, you know, a sense of, of goodness and beauty and, and, and in all kinds of other things. So I, I think we have a choice to make. And the book, um, it's, the book is arguably a business book. I don't really think it is because the point that I'm trying to make is that this concept of the cycle one and the cycle two applies to absolutely every domain of life. Because Gerard, if Gerard is a hedgehog, he discovered this one idea is a universal principle. It's mimetic desire, and it's always operative. It's like gravity. It's all around us. And, and it's just a matter of how we respond to it and how we act in a world where, the, where we're social creatures and we affect each other's desires. It is like gravity. It really is. And I, and I think the distinction, for me at least, in thinking about the nature of nudge right, and the nature of our connection with other people is that I want to continually try to expand the number of people who I have a non-instrumental relationship with. Right? Because I, I think that the, the hallmark of 
the bad nudge is that you are treating others as a means to an end. Right? You're treating your clients as a means to revenue. And or you're, you're a politician, you're treating voters as a means to winning their vote. You're an ad man, you're, 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 you're treating everyone who's listening to your messages instrumentally. As opposed to treating someone as an end in themselves. That your goal in communicating with that person is not to, oh, I'm going to get you to behave in a certain way as a means to an end that benefits me. But our communications, our openness to both nudging and being nudged by the other person comes from a position of, purely a position of, caring about that other person as a human being, as an another autonomous human being. Now, that that layer that what I like to call the pack, the other people with whom we have that relationship that is not instrumental, but treat someone as an autonomous human being with a mind and a spirit and a purpose of their own and equal to mine. I think we, except for the, 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 the pure clinical sociopaths out there, I think we all have people who are in that pack, right? Maybe it, maybe it is your partner, right? Because I, I, I think that's what makes for a great uh, partnership, a great family. Maybe it's your, your, your parents, maybe it's your kids. The more you can expand that pack, though, the more I find that we are engaged in what you like to call cycle two, the, the, where, where our communications and our efforts build something greater, as opposed to the zero-sum game of everyone's treating everyone else as a means to an end. It can't be everyone, right? And, 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 and right, I mean, I've got a business, right? So, so when I think about subscribers to, 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 to Epsilon Theory, and we, we try this. I say, you know, there's an appeal. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you like what you're reading and you think that good content should be rewarded, you should subscribe, you should pay us money for that content. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's great. We get, we get no subscribers from that. <laughs> we get no subscribers for that. The only way we get increase in the subscriber is to use a stick, right? Some sort of leaky paywall where, oh, right, if you want to read it, you've got to pay money. And 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 so there's that it it takes time and distance and not I'm not saying that you can have a non-instrumental relationship with everyone in the world, but I do believe that the more people you can bring into your pack who you do not treat as instrumental means to an end and expect that they will not do the same with you, man, that's when really crazy good things start to happen in this world. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's a fundamental, you know, ethical principle from Kant. And I think the key word there is, is never treat another human person as merely a means to an end, you know, treat them as a means to themselves. People are instruments, um, to achieve ends uh, all the time, you know. Uh, hey, go 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 talk to my buddy and see if you can convince him of, of this thing that's going to be good for him, right? But it's it's never merely treating somebody as as a, as a tool or an instrument to serve my own ends, realizing their person with, with dignity and their own will. 
And you know, Gerard has a haunting quote. I don't think it's in the book. I just pulled it up. So I'm just going to read it because I think this goes directly to what we're talking about here in terms of pack formation. And he says, modern individualism assumes the form of a desperate denial of the fact that through mimetic desire, and he's talking about the negative form of mimetic desire here, each of us seeks to impose his will upon his fellow man, whom he professes to love, but more often despises, you know, to sort of despises secretly. Um, but, you know, this sort of outward affectation of kindness, um, because, you know, secretly we, we sort of, um, you know, we, we, we view them as a threat in some way. And that seems to be the state of the country right now is, is you know, just tremendous suspicion and a breakdown of trust and positive mimetic desire, positive, uh, these, these bonds forming a pack of these kind of people that is predicated on a certain amount of, of trust and goodwill. It's, it's like a precondition for this to happen. And without that, uh, you know, our packs are going to have to get smaller and smaller. And that, that's, that's what worries me a little bit, right? Are we just going to be, you know, my pack is, you know, everybody who reads my Substack or something like that. I mean, I hope not. Right. But that, that seems to be the direction we're moving in. You know, Luke, I, I was in a really dark place uh, when I started writing Epsilon Theory because I, I, I didn't know who to talk to about ideas like this. I hadn't even developed them really fully myself. Right. And um, what, what I found in the, in the writing of Epsilon Theory is like the old police song, right? You, you know, toss that message in a bottle and you come back the next morning, there are a thousand bottles back up on the shore. That was my experience. And I, I'm, and I'm really interested to hear what your experience has been writing the book. Right. Because, again, we're talking about, you know, what do we do? And here I want to talk about what what do we, Ben and Luke, do? Right? But I will tell you that, that, that my experience with the writing has been to discover that I am not alone, that there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people like you and me, Luke, right, who 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 want to make that human connection who want to be pursuing i'll say uh our better angels as opposed to our baser mimetic desires it's and i think it's always been this way through history okay because i i i think of the the two the two most you know important things were said you know more than two thousand years ago. One was Socrates, know thyself, and the other was was Jesus. Right? I'm not a religious guy. I'm just saying he was he was a really smart cool guy. It's, it's the same Kantian principle. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's that golden rule to treat others not as instruments, not as a means to an end, but as autonomous human beings. And you know those. Let, let's be honest, both Socrates and Jesus were killed for saying those things. Right? So we got to be a little careful here, let's say. But, but these are not new ideas. And what I've discovered is that there are tens of thousands of people. You just, you just don't know these people. They're, they're not necessarily sitting in the cubicle next to you. But they're all over the world. 
they're men, women of all ages, all socioeconomic class. How do we, Luke and Ben, how do we promote this sort of, of, of community, of, 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 of growing packs and sub-packs, but that are guided by those principles of, yes, we're human animals, yes, we, 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 we want through mimesis and what we see with others wanting, but we can actually harness that to be a really powerful source of good in the world. Mm. You know, it was a tr- I felt very similar to you when you started writing Epsilon Theory. Uh, relatively lonely. Uh, like, you know, am I going crazy here? You know, and, and that's like the, the typical response, right? Of, of you, you sort of begin to question your own sanity. And I realized I, I really needed to write this book in part just to help me communicate uh, what's on my mind. And there's tremendous pressure with a major trade publisher these days, especially to write a book that is red meat to the right or the left, or it satisfies some very specific niche. And there was tremendous pressure to write that kind of a book. And I, I tried to resist every step of the way, and I hope it came through in the book. Um, but I wrote it with some trepidation, like people are just going to think I'm crazy or soft or, you know, I'm, I'm actually advocating for, for, for not, right, like responding in kind to other people. Because here's, here's the rub for me. Uh, if we just respond in kind, which is kind of a mimetic approach to things, um, then I'm not quite sure how we get anywhere. And it's why I use this phrase anti-mimetic in the book. I think we're only going to move someplace new through some anti-mimetic action. So one of the other uh, phrases that comes to mind uh, is also a biblical phrase um, mentioned by Jesus. And he said, listen, if you are only kind to those who are kind to you, what credit is that to you? What credit is that to you? Um, Instead, love your enemies, right? Love those who hate you. So that's the most subversive, radical, anti-mimetic action in the world. Absolutely right. When I I talk about anti-mimetic, at the end of the day, that's what I'm talking about. And otherwise, we just move into tribes and we're just kind to those who are kind to us or who agree with us. And it's going to take that anti-mimetic action, which is jarring to people um, when, when somebody actually practices that. So that's what I'm here trying to do. Um, and whoever's, you know, whoever has ears to listen, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk, right? And, and let's see what we can do here. And just trying to write as honestly as I can. And that's what I appreciate about Epsilon so much. Like you take a risk and it's been, it's been heartening to see the number of people, I'm sure like ET, who have raised their hands and said, hey, I don't know, you know, like let, let's, let's talk, right? Because um, I'm realizing that I'm probably a little bit caught up in this myself, you know, as I still am. And let's have a discussion about where we go from here. Well, Luke, I'll, I'll close this off by offering an invitation to you, which is that look, writing a book is a, is a discrete event. And, and, and it's wonderful because it's a, it's a preserved notion of, of what you want to say, your voice. But it's also a challenge, right? Because, you know, the once you've written, once you've completed the book, there is a um, 
this the the weight the inertia of completion sets in because what we're describing is not ever a completed thing right it is a long game it is a it is an ongoing process what we were talking about earlier of spreading the word and challenging people and it is a challenge to take what you're describing as anti-mimetic behavior which we've talked about is take the l take the loss it's the hardest thing in the world to do particularly in the world that's been constructed for us and the choice architectures have been that have been presented for us is the hardest thing in the world to do so my invitation luke is that if you want to write uh whether it's 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 from the book whether it's an extension of the book, the, uh, the, the, the door is always open. So we, we, we all have something to say. That's, that's, a, that's a big plank of the pack in, in Epsilon Theory. Uh, but you've, you've, you've absolutely got something to say, Luke. And, and I love the, what you've said to date. Again, the book is Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, but let's not stop here, Luke. Let's not stop with this conversation. We'd love to have you uh, write and publish and say more uh, if you'd like to, If any, anytime you want to. The door is open. I, I appreciate it, Ben. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I will definitely take you up on that at some point. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, everyone, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, it's been with uh, Luke Burgess. Again, the book is Wanting. Um, you know the, the the deal with epsilon theory. Like, subscribe, and comment. I, there, there, there's some there's some like little phrase I'm supposed to say here, but uh, it helps out a lot. Uh, frankly, if, uh, if 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 you can uh, promote the podcast in whatever way you can, and we will see you all uh, again shortly. Thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.